2 Samuel chapter 9. And David said, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul that I might show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I might show kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then the king said, sent and brought for him to the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that I should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to his house, and I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants, sorry, and you and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring into the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's son. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived at Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, and he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, April. You uh, had quite a challenge with that passage of Scripture. <laughs> Let's give April a hand for saying all those names. <laughs> we, uh, we had to actually check each other earlier today to make sure we're going to say Mephibosheth the same way. Now, I say Ziba. She said, see, but we didn't even rehearse that word. But anyway, it doesn't matter that much. Well, it's good to be back with you all. Um, thank you, Mike. I'm so uh, impressed and blessed by what you all do each year during August with these four emphases, and I'm also very excited that I get to speak to that second one over there, that we as God's people believe that God has good news for the found. So this story, I think, speaks directly to that. Let's pray as we jump into this passage of Scripture. Father, how we thank you that you do have good news for us. And we've heard it over and over again today already, just in the singing that we've done and the praying that we've done and the people that we see. Thank you, Father, that you've blessed us with good news. And so we pray now that you will illumine our hearts and minds and that you'll send your Holy Spirit into this room. Lord, let him teach us 
the good news for the found that is found in this chapter of Scripture. We're listening to you, Lord, and we pray that you'll speak in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes people just need to know that they matter. Um, have you ever gotten a text or an email or a phone call from somebody and all they say to you is, I just wanted you to know that I'm thinking about you today. Or I just want you to know that I've prayed for you. Or I just wanted you to know that you're on my mind and in my heart. You ever had that experience? I think probably many, many of us have. I hope you have. It means a lot. It makes a difference, doesn't it? Uh, recently, I was in a restaurant and I happened to overhear a conversation between two women. And one woman said to the other, you never answer my texts. And she said, when you don't answer my texts, it's not like you're saying the texts aren't very important. It makes me feel like I'm not important. People need to know that they matter, that they've been seen, that they've been heard and noticed that they're important to somebody. C.S. Lewis in his essay, The Weight of Glory, said that we all have a longing to be acknowledged, to be on the inside of some door that we've always seen from the outside. He said that when someone acknowledges you, when they communicate that you matter, it's like the healing of an old ache. I know a few of you, I don't know most of you, but I know this, that one thing we have all in common is that we all have that old ache. Everyone in this church needs to know that you matter to someone. Especially God, right? Especially that we matter to God. Because the longing to be known and loved and accepted by God is the greatest of all human desires. Perhaps you've heard what St. Augustine wrote in book one of his confessions, rather famous quotation, you have formed us, God, for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find your, their rest in you. Our hearts are restless. Longing with that old ache, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in the Lord. Well, this story that April read that you heard is going to tell us how to find our rest in God and know that we matter to him. So let's dive into this story. Let me first of all remind you of where we are in the flow of scripture here in 2 Samuel 9 because we're sort of jumping right in to a passage that some of you may not be that familiar with. Uh, well, Saul, the first king of Israel, is now dead. David is now king, famous character in the Bible. All of Israel is behind David. He passed his first 100 days as king with flying colors. All of Israel is behind him. His approval rating is 100%. The Ark of the Covenant is now in Jerusalem where it belonged. David has subdued his enemies. He has appointed all of his advisors. His cabinet is in place. And in chapter 8, previous chapter, 
it says that the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So you might say that it's morning in Israel in 2 Samuel 9. And at this point, most monarchs of the world would probably get their domestic policies all in place. They would, they would call their cabinet together and all of that kind of stuff. They would you know, lay out their plans. They would go on national TV and speak to the nation about the condition of the empire. But David does something very unusual. He calls in Ziba, one of the late King Saul's servants. And David says to him there in verse 3, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul, previous king, that I may show the kindness of God to him? Now that word kindness, super important in this sermon today. It means grace. It's the Hebrew word chesed, chesed. Watch out that you're not standing close to someone when you say that word. Chesed, kindness, grace, free, unmerited love and favor. But note that it's the kindness of God that David wants to show. He wants to pass along not just human kindness to the family of Saul, but the free grace, the unmerited favor of God himself. And Ziba says there in verses 3 and 4, well, yes, David, there is this one orphan in Saul's family. He's living in Lodabar in the home of Machir, and his name is Mephibosheth. So if you're making an outline, here are the three things I want us to talk about today. A mangled man, a kind king, and a gracious God. Simple way to look at this story. Let's dive in first to this first thing here, a mangled man, Mephibosheth, that's his name. Now when I say that he is a mangled man, what I mean is to say that he is very broken. He has a number of strikes against him. For example, think about his name. You know what it means? It's hard to translate out of the Hebrew, but Scholars say that it means something like one who scatters shame. Or maybe it's from the mouth of the shameful thing. Hard to translate that, but at least you hear the one word shame in there, right? How would you like the word shame as part of your name? Imagine what it was like growing up with a name like from the mouth of the shameful thing. Shame was a part of Mephibosheth's identity, a theme of his life. Secondly, think about his family. Mephibosheth was the only son of Jonathan, one of the positive characters in the Old Testament, David's best friend, but he was King Saul's grandson. And King Saul was a disgraced, ungodly man. Mephibosheth would be forever branded as a descendant of unfaithful Saul. Another count against Mephibosheth. Furthermore, Mephibosheth's parents had both been murdered by the Philistines, the enemies of Israel. So Mephibosheth was an orphan. He had no home of his own. He was staying at the home of a friend in a town on the other side of the Jordan River called Lo-Debar. Lodabar was a non-Jewish town. It was far away from Jerusalem. 
And you know what the name Lodabar means? <laughs> Literally, no thing. No thing. Nothing. It made me curious whether there are odd names of towns here in America. Did you know there is a town called Nothing, Arizona? <laughs> Lodabar, Arizona. No thing, nothing. I found out there's a town in Kentucky called Disappointment. How would you like to be from Disappointment? There's a town in Michigan called Hell. And in Minnesota, there's a town called Embarrassment. Hello, where are you from? Orlando, Florida. I'm from Embarrassment, Minnesota. Well, Mephibosheth's from nothing. In the third place, think about his poverty. His poverty. Verse 7 of our text says that he lost everything he had. He had no land, no house, no servants, no crops. All of the property that he had owned as a descendant of Saul had been confiscated. So he had nothing to offer David. Nothing at all. His accounts were all overdrawn. If there had been food stamps back in this day, Mephibosheth would have been on them. He was penniless. And finally, think about Mephibosheth's disability, right? I mean, this is one of the most obvious things about this man, his disability. Because in verse 3, it tells us that he was crippled in both feet. You could look back to 2 Samuel chapter 4, if you want to, to see what happened. Why was he crippled? Why was he lame? Well, it tells us there that when Mephibosheth was but five years old, his nurse accidentally dropped him. She was running away from the Philistines, holding Mephibosheth in her arms. The Philistines had killed Saul and Jonathan, and she dropped Mephibosheth to the ground, and his legs were permanently damaged. Now, you say, well, that's too bad. No. Back in this day and time, that is very bad. Because in this culture that we're reading about, to be lame was to be labeled unclean. Lame animals were not accepted as sacrifices in the priestly system. Lame people could not ever serve as priests. Over in the New Testament, you find Jesus often hanging around with a lot of disabled people, the blind, the lame, and so on, and healing them. Why? Because those were the people who were considered rejects by the religious establishment. But here comes Mephibosheth. See, there was a stigma attached to such people as he. That's why the author of this chapter feels the need to underscore Mephibosheth's disability. He ends the chapter. Did you notice that? Verse 13, he ends the chapter with these eight words. Now he was lame in both his feet. I suspect that when children saw Mephibosheth, they called him names. I remember when I was a kid back in the early 60s, there was a friend named Billy that had polio. Some of you were alive back then. You remember the leg braces? You remember the wheelchairs, the polio, the stigma attached to them? And we called him Crip. I wonder what they called Mephibosheth. 
So when David asks Ziba if there were any descendants of Saul to whom he could show the chesed, the kindness of God, Ziba, you can, you can almost hear it, can't you? Ziba saying, well, yeah, there is this one disabled guy, Mephibosheth, but you don't want him, do you? No wonder Mephibosheth calls himself, in verse 8, a dead dog. He's been labeled, he's been bullied, he's been insulted all his life, his family is hated by all Israel, he's poor, he's homeless, and he's physically disabled. But the text says that this mangled man, this hated grandson of Saul, matters to King David. So let's talk about David, a very, very kind king. What does he do to Mephibosheth? At least six things. First, he pursues him. He pursues Mephibosheth. That is, he seeks him out individually. Verse 1 of the text. Is there still anybody, Ziba? Is there anybody left of the house of Saul that I may show him chesed, kindness, grace, unmerited favor for Jonathan's sake? Verse 3, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Verse 5, bring him to me. You see David not resting until he has located this person to whom he can show kindness. Secondly, David calls him by name. Verse 6 says that Mephibosheth came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David just said this one word, Mephibosheth. Isn't it great when somebody remembers your name? Now, the older I get, the less good I am at remembering names. But it's so great when someone you've not seen for a while does remember your name and says, Joe, Mike, Mark, hi, Bill, Andy, Glenn. Isn't that great? Third thing David does is he reassures Mephibosheth. He reassures him. Verse 7, he says, Do not fear, do not be afraid, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. Now why would David feel compelled to reassure Mephibosheth that, Don't worry about it, it's okay, it's all right. Well, I suspect Mephibosheth thought he was going to be executed as, as a traitor. He doesn't know why David has summoned him into his into his, into his home, he's going to be executed. He's been a traitor. He's grandson of Saul. David reassures Mephibosheth. And then fourth, but instead of killing Mephibosheth and doing anything punitive to him, David does the opposite, right? He restores his lost fortunes. In verse 7, he says to Mephibosheth, I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. Now that was risky for David. Giving back Saul's land might very well have encouraged Mephibosheth to try and take the throne. But David was willing to take that gamble. He took that risk. He also, in verse 10, uh, orders Ziba to wait on Mephibosheth hand and foot. So he restores his lost fortunes. In the fifth place, not only that, 
But this is the most unbelievable thing of them all. David brings Mephibosheth into the royal family. He adopts him as his own son. Look at verse 7 once again. He says, you will always eat at my table. And also in verse 11, same thing. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. You see, back in that time period in Israel, just as it is today, to eat with somebody was symbolic of intimate relationship. It was a sign of friendship, of trust, of covenant love. And this is not just anybody's table. This is the table of the king of Israel, the mightiest sovereign of the ancient world. His table. So you see, this was an unparalleled honor. It was outrageous. And finally, number six. David keeps Mephibosheth as his son. He keeps him in this relationship of adoption. Notice that David's kindness is permanent. Three times in this passage. Verse 7, you shall eat at my table. What's the word? Always. Verse 10, Mephibosheth shall always eat at my table. Verse 13, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he ate always at the king's table. Mephibosheth's future is secure. Great story about a great man named David, right? Great interesting tale about this poor guy Mephibosheth. Is that all this is? No. You know by being a member here at Lake Baldwin Church that the Old Testament looks forward and shouts the gospel of Jesus Christ. This story in 2 Samuel 9 is a beautiful illustration, not just of the love of David for uh, Mephibosheth, but the love of Jesus, the love of the triune God for each one of his people. This story is a lot like the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's why. For those of you who are followers of Jesus, and I suspect that's almost everybody in the room, before you became a Christian, you were Mephibosheth, one who scatters shame. You were a sinner, lost and without hope in the world. Because Romans 3.23 says it, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You were a child of the devil, the Bible says. You were an enemy combatant of God, a sinner by birth and by choice. You were from low to bar. You had no thing to offer God. All of your righteous acts, the Bible says, were like filthy rags. You lived outside the land of promise. You were far away from God, depending on yourself to get by instead of depending on God. And you were crippled spiritually. No, worse, you were dead spiritually. Dead, the Bible says, in your sins. Unable to please God. Unable to save yourself. And unclean in the sight of our holy God. Unless God came to you, you could not and would not go to him. That's what human nature is all about. So your name was Mephibosheth. 
you were a hopeless, unwanted, and sinful orphan. But one day, one day, God called you to himself. He pursued you in Christ Jesus, just like that story in Luke 15 about the lost sheep, the one out of the 100 sheep that the shepherd leaves the sheep in the pen and goes out pursuing the one lost sheep. That was you. That was me. Jesus pursued us like that. He called you by name. His spirit opened your heart and breathed life into it. And God said, don't be afraid. I see you. You matter to me. I care about you. My heart goes out to you. I want to show you my chesed, my kindness, my grace, my free, unmerited favor. And God restored your lost fortunes. He gave you eternal life, hope, joy, purpose, meaning. By the perfect life of Jesus, he declared you righteous in him. By the blood shed on the cross, he forgave your sins and set you free of condemnation. By his resurrection from the dead, he gave you a new kind of life and a new power and a new hope in the future. And now, by his ascension to the right hand of the Father, Jesus is praying in heaven for you individually every day. And God did all this not because, as Mark said so well earlier today, because you were this obedient, godly, holy person. No, it was because of the covenant that he made with his son to redeem you out of your lost estate and to bring you into the household and the family of God. You're no longer an abandoned, forgotten orphan, and you never will be if you're a child of God today. The father has brought you into his family, into his home. He calls you his son. He calls you his daughter. Ephesians 1.5 says you've been adopted. Ephesians 2.6 says that you've been seated with Christ in heavenly places. And one day, one day, you'll join all of God's redeemed people around the heavenly banquet table. Not David's table, not mine, not your table, but Jesus' own table. He will invite you in to sit at his wedding feast where death will be no more, it says in Revelation, nor shall there be mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. So this story is not just about a mangled man and a kind king. It's about a gracious God. A gracious God. God's grace to sinners is like David's grace to Mephibosheth, only much, much greater. Let me tell you a story that I've experienced that sort of goes along with this story in 2 Samuel. Uh, about a woman, a young woman that I'll call Jenny. That's not her name, her real name, but Jenny. Um, Jenny is a, a woman that I've come to know. She had, as a child, abusive parents. So at the age of five, the Department of Children and Families took Jenny out of her home and placed her in a foster home. Only this man, this foster dad, abused her worse than her biological father did. So she was put in another foster home. These parents were Christians, but they were also very legalistic. They followed a bunch of rules and imposed rules upon all of their children. Very, very harsh 
burdensome rules. When Jenny did something wrong, uh, and she told me all this, right? When Jenny did anything wrong, they had her write Bible verses until they felt that she had repented enough. When she did something really wrong, Jenny had to memorize entire chapters of the Bible and recite them to her foster parents. So this is the way she grew up. They took her to church two or three times a week. Everything was heavily uh, religious in the worst sense of the word. So by the age of 12 or 13, as you might guess, Jenny was fed up with God. She didn't want to follow a God who was mad at her all the time, a God who made her feel that she was nothing more than a disappointment. Somebody like Mephibosheth, one who scatters shame. So she gave her body to every boy that came along. She turned to drugs and to alcohol. She cut herself terribly. She spent nights in jail and out on the street. And it looked like Jenny was just going to wind up another disaster, another statistic like we've all heard about. Except for the fact that a young couple that I'll call Mark and Alice, again, not their real names, were looking for someone to adopt. And to make a long story short, they were linked up with Jenny, a young teenager by this time. They took her into their home and bathed her with chesed. Grace, love, favor, kindness. And Jenny started to walk the long, long road to recovery. Well, I know this story because Mark is a friend of mine. Mark, the adoptive dad. Until recently, uh, I played racquetball with him several times a week, and he told me about his adopted daughter. So one day, I just mentioned to Mark, hey, I'm a pastor. If Jenny ever had the courage to, you know, to dare to walk into the wall of a church and meet with a pastor, I'd sure be happy to do that. And lo and behold, I got a call one day, and it was Jenny on the line. And she said, my dad told me about you. I'd, sure, I'll, I'll come and talk. And so she came to my office, and I heard that story that I shared with you. And at the end of it, I was just in tears because I looked into Jenny's eyes, and I said to her, you know, Jenny, I want you to know that God loves you very, very much. And that's what you need to hear this morning. And that's what I need to hear this morning and every day. God loves you, found people, very, very much. More than you will ever know. It'll take all of eternity for us to even begin to scratch the surface of the love of God for us. You who once had nothing now have everything. You who once were not a people are now the people of God. Good news for the found, right? So what should you do with this sermon? How should you respond? Well, I can think of two things depending on where you are with God today. Now, I may be speaking this morning to someone who has never said yes to Jesus. And a lot of this stuff is things you're looking at, you're thinking about it. Maybe you've been raised in a Christian home, but you've never really felt like you embraced Christ for yourself and made him the Lord of your life and 
follow him every day. Maybe that is true of you. This story is an invitation for you. An invitation to the only person in the universe whose love for you will last and never let you go. You're looking for love. I know. I've been there. I was a young adult before I found out that God loved me. So I've been there. I know what it is like to look for love in all the wrong places. To look and try to matter. You're trying to matter. But if you're trying to do that independent of God, it's illusory. It will not last. It will not work. So maybe the reason you're here this morning in this church is that God is saying, stop it. Stop living the way you're living. I'm calling you to live with me, to eat at my table and be my son and my daughter. Don't say no. Don't say no to him. Do what Mephibosheth did. Bring your brokenness, your poverty, your mistakes, your need, your disability to Jesus. Go to the king. He'll show you kindness. I'm guaranteeing you that. But the gospel is not just for the lost, as we've heard this morning. It's for the found. It's like that quote in your bulletin this morning by Tim Keller. The gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian life. It's the A to Z of the Christian life. You need it every day. So if you're a believer in Jesus, this story is an invitation for you also. God is inviting you who are his to believe the gospel and to live out of the power of the gospel instead of some other pretended source of significance and identity. And I don't know about you, but I find this to be one of the hardest things to do. I know God loves me up here. I know he's adopted me. I know all these things. I know theology and stuff. But as sure as shooting... Every day, I want to push my chair back from the king's table and find some other table, some other place to get my identity from. It's a continual battle. But I'll tell you what I found. Here's what I found. That the more you believe the gospel, the more you preach the good news to yourself every day, I know I'm your child. Father, I'm trusting you. You love me. You died for me. You rose again for me. I'm justified. I'm being sanctified. I've been adopted. I'm growing more and more into your image. The more I preach the gospel to myself, the more I find I want to live for his glory. The less I want to sin. And the more I want to share God's chesed with other people you will find that to be true too so my charge to us today is let's start again if we've stopped doing it let's start again preaching the gospel to ourselves every day wake up in the morning thank you father you've adopted me thank you that I'm your child I'm your son I'm your daughter Throughout the day, you're at work, you're at school, something happens, you're in conflict, you're in a difficult conversation, you blow it, Uh, you've got to go home, you've got to deal with kids, you've got to do all these things. Father, thank you that I walk every day, every moment in the sunshine of your love. I am your child. You have adopted me. I'm eating at your king's table right now. You'll never let me go. I will always be your child. The more you rehearse the good news... It has, as Mike said earlier, a transforming power, freeing you from the desire to sin and empowering you 
to live for his glory and for the good and the kindness of others. So, do you matter to God? Listen to what God is saying here. You will always eat at my table, just like one of the king's sons. Never forget that. Let's pray. Father, I forget it (laughs) all the time. Every day it seems that I walk away from your table and try to feast on other things that the world offers or that I think I must produce myself. Lord, would you help us, help this church, help us as believers, the found, to never go away from the gospel. Help us, Lord, to preach it to ourselves. Spirit of God, fill us with the power to resist the temptation, to take upon ourselves this feeling of being shameful things and help us to live out of the kindness of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.